it's for over two years now, if you can believe that. Um, but we're nearing the end, and uh, it is apparent even in the uh, sections that we will be reading in the coming weeks. Where we last left off in the book of Acts, well, we left, last left off after a, a riot. There was a riot that took place in Ephesus while Paul was there. Paul had been ministering in Ephesus for a little over two years now in the school of Tyrannus, school of the tyrant. How would you like to have gone to his school? Maybe some of you did go to his school, uh, or at least his descendants' school. But Paul would go there, and he would teach in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And this was a time of uh, fruitful ministry, but also a time of many challenges that they faced. Uh, We know that Ephesus became the hub, basically for all of Asia, to hear the gospel. Sorry, I keep knocking this thing. Uh, But all of Asia heard the gospel from Ephesus. Goodness, don't want to blow those speakers out. All right. All of Asia heard the, uh, the gospel from Ephesus, uh, but along with the, the many blessings that came, there are also many challenges. We know that the Apostle Paul would go out and there'd be miracles performed, but then many people were jealous of Paul and his ministry and his work. They would try to emulate them. We remember those sons of Sceva who uh, tried to basically uh, take the mag- what they thought were magic spells that Paul was using to cast out demons and use them for themselves, and that didn't work out too well. But we also remember as a result, many of the magicians would uh, take their, their uh, magical spells and incantations and books and burn them all after seeing the result of what happened there. So a time of great fruitfulness uh, as well as challenges. The missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul are coming to a close, and the rest of the book of Acts is going to focus on Paul and his journey to Rome. This, we can think of this almost as the third act of the story. We have the first act of the book of Acts that takes place in Jerusalem in Judea. We see the transition into the second act with the Apostle Paul being called and going out on his missionary journeys. And now we're entering the third act where the Apostle Paul will go to Jerusalem and then begin to make his way towards Rome. But before Paul departs to Jerusalem, he wants to take the opportunity to do what he loves doing and minister to the saints, to minister to those whom he has already preached the gospel to, to build them up for when he is going to be gone. And this has been one of the focuses of Paul throughout his missionary journeys. Paul is not only concerned with going and uh, making new disciples, but he's concerned with building up those churches that were already established. He often pays visits back to places that he had already been to continue to strengthen them up. We see the tremendous love that Paul has for the church, for the people of God. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So Paul, he says, I'm doing this for you, out of my love for you, the church. To Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy, and I'll just read it, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. 
For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, or the sake of the elect, as the King James puts it, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So Paul's heart was for the church. And we see that as he continues to go back and build these churches. So, uh, and that brings us to Acts chapter 20. And we'll read Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. We'll pray, and we'll get on with our message. So Acts chapter 20. Now after the uproar had ceased, Paul, having summoned and exhorted the disciples, said farewell and left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months... And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Paris, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we had gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room, where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he sunk into that sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were not a little comforted. But we were going ahead to the ship to set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came up to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and, f- and the next day we crossed over to Samus, and the, next, and the day following we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the work that you have done through the faithful ministry of the Apostle Paul. I pray that as we read this, we would see the work of your Holy Spirit in it, that he would be at work in our lives, that we would seek to follow Paul as he followed Christ, that we would seek to emulate the love that the Apostle Paul had for the church in our love for one another. I pray that we'd be blessed in this time of reading your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so going back to verse 1. Uh, After the uproar had ceased, and Luke is here reminding us what had just taken place in Ephesus, that uh, the massive crowd that was verging on a riot uh, that had placed 
the church in considerable danger had the rioters gotten their way. And we see the Apostle Paul stayed in Ephesus at this point in time. This riot did not drive him out. Uh, but Paul wanted to be where the action was. And we even remember reading in the last chapter when the mob was forming, what did Paul say? Well, I want to run right into the middle of the mob. And his disciples said, no, we're not going to let you do that. Uh, so uh, we, we see the excitement that Paul had. But we see afterwards, Paul summoned and exhorted the disciples and, uh, and, and this makes sense in light of what had just happened. It's easy for us to look back with hindsight and seeing these things take place and uh, for us to, to not really understand perhaps some of the, the thoughts and the emotions that these men had gone through. Well, let me ask you, what would happen if a great mob formed in downtown Atlantic and they were angry because of the ministry of Atlantic Gospel Chapel? They are openly teaching things out of the Bible, a book that we condemn. Uh, this chapel needs to be shut down completely. Its members need to be arrested before the mayor finally came out and said, now hold on a second, what we're doing here isn't lawful. Do you think that next day at church you'd just be, uh, well, do you think you'd be feeling the same way you feel now? Or do you think there'd be a, I don't know, maybe some kind of a pit in your gut where it's just like, Oh boy, what just happened? Uh, the, the town was in an uproar. They're going crazy over the things that are taking place here. Uh, how do I feel about it? Are we doing the right thing? And, and, and that's something that we can be pressured into feeling like, did we do something wrong, right? Uh, when the world gets mad at us, we immediately want to think, oh, am I doing something wrong? And it would have been easy for the Christian church to feel that way as well. Are we doing something wrong, Paul? Uh, this isn't the reaction that we expected. But we see that Paul goes on and he encourages them, encourages them in light of the recent events that happened. And, and really, this does show that when, negative react, uh, when we do find negative reactions to our faith right, on the individual level, maybe on our families and friends, that shouldn't drive us to despair and that shouldn't cause us to not want to proclaim that faith. There's an interesting saying that uh, I think some World War II bomber said. Uh, he said that the flak gets heavy when we're over target right? And, and what's that mean? You're, you're flying a plane? Oh, where's the enemy at? Bang, bang, they start shooting at you. Oh, there they are. Uh, and that can be how it is in the Christian walk, too. The flak gets heavy when we're over target. If we're uh, being faithful and we're proclaiming what the Word of God says, and we know what the world uh, thinks about that Word, and we know that the world is in rebellion against that God, the world starts to react negatively to the light that is through this word. We should know, okay, uh, we are, we're where we need to be. Now, uh, concentrate fire where we're at, right? And that's how the church, that's the attitude that the church had. Remember, in uh, Jerusalem, when the church faced persecution, the disciples were taken and they were beaten on account of proclaiming the name of Jesus, that prayer that was raised up by the church. O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against 
against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence." while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what did they do when the, the uh, Jerusalem, the city, was coming up against them? They said, Lord, give us confidence that we may go out boldly while you do your work in this world. And we, I, I have to wonder, uh, was not the, the prayer of encouragement that they prayed in those meetings after that riot similar, uh, not similar to this prayer? So we go on and we read of the travels of the Apostle Paul. He gives them exhortation uh, and he bids them farewell and leaves to go to Macedonia. He's making his return trips. And Paul had been planning this trip for some time. In the previous chapter, uh, we read that after the things are finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, and, and after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's ultimate goal was to go to Rome, but there were things that he needed to do first. Uh, one of those things, going through Macedonia. And uh, one of the reasons that he was going through Macedonia, as we'll discuss, is that he was taking up a collection to take to the church of Jerusalem. In the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, and Paul would have written Romans around this time. He, He perhaps wrote it in Corinth, where he'll be later in this chapter. And Paul, as he's writing Romans, is preparing for this very trip that we're reading about. And writing to the Romans, he says, For this reason I've been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have gone for many years, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints." So he's going to Jerusalem serving the saints. And one of the ways that he is serving the saints is to bring the saints of Jerusalem a contribution from Macedonia and Achaia. We keep reading in Romans chapter 15, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And I want to take just a few moments. Uh, the, the whole message isn't going to be centered on this. But uh, because the topics come up, I thought it'd be good to look at what the Bible says regarding principles of Christian giving, since that is such an underlying thing in this text. That is why Paul is going around to receive a gift to bring to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, we don't like to talk about money, and we definitely don't like to talk about money in the church, but the Bible does talk about money, and the Bible does talk about giving. So let's take the opportunity, just a a couple uh, principles, a couple principles that we can understand about Christian giving. Uh, First principle, and this isn't an exclusive, this isn't an exhaustive list, but the first principle of Christian giving is Christian giving is voluntary. Christian giving is voluntary. It's not something that is enforced. 
When we give, we are giving what the Lord has placed on our hearts to give, not because we're forced to or because it's a requirement or anything. We don't have someone waiting outside the chapel uh, for you to to buy your ticket to get in, right? Uh, Make sure you give me your tithe and then we'll let you in. No, that's not how it works, right? Uh, It it is not forced. And we see this, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he would have written to the Corinthians around this same time too, says each one of you, uh, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, uh, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he says, when you give, don't do it grudgingly and don't do it under compulsion, but do it because you have purposed in your heart to do it Uh, and do it cheerfully. Uh, Another principle is that when we do give, we give out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. Now, uh, I'm sure there have been plenty of uh, very excited missionaries and fundraising messages talking about how, oh, yes, uh, uh, give, 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 and then when you've given everything, give a little more. You know, we've probably heard things like that, and they make you feel bad for living in a house and having a couple dollars in your bank account, right? That's not what the Bible teaches, right? When we give, we give out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For if the readiness is present, it, uh, the readiness to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Nowhere in Scripture does God make it a general rule that his people are expected to give all that they possess, rather they are to give out of what he has already blessed us with right? And this is just a general rule, right? Uh, A general principle that we can apply. It doesn't mean that you can't give more, right? But that's the general principle that God gives us. Uh, Another thing, when we give, we can give with the expectation that God is supplying our needs and that we are not going to miss out on anything by our giving, right? Because everything that we have is ultimately from God, we can expect that even as we are giving, we're not really losing out on anything. The Apostle Paul of the Corinthians says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that that, uh, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which, uh, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So we give out of what God gives us. God gives us a harvest. Why? So that we can go out and then sow that seed. And don't think this isn't prosperity gospel nonsense. This doesn't mean uh, I give a dollar, God will give me $10 back. That's not what it is, because guess what? There's more that we receive than just money, right? Uh, but there is that principle there. Um, another thing, uh, Uh, another principle that we can take from the scriptures is that when we give material, we give material things in exchange for spiritual things that we have received, right? Uh, In writing to the Romans, the apostle Paul says, if the, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, speaking of the spiritual things given to them by Jerusalem, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things, And then similarly to the Corinthians, 
the Apostle Paul says, if we have sowed spiritually, spiritual things from you, in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Uh, so another principle, another principle that we can learn is that uh, we give on, uh, one principle of giving is we give in order to give honor and supply the needs of those that God has placed over us to minister to us. And this is where the minister preaching this gets really uncomfortable because this is what he lives on. But uh, it's in the Bible, so you can take it up with God if you don't like what I'm reading. Uh, In 1 Timothy, the apostle says to Timothy, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And then finally, one last principle, and this is an overarching principle that we can all keep in mind when it comes to giving. Our giving is ultimately an emulation of what Christ has done for us, right? Our giving, when, we're, when we give, we do it so that we can be like Christ. Uh, in to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Everything we have received, we received from God. He has given it to us. So we, in some small way, can emulate the Lord likewise in giving. So that is what Paul is doing during this trip. Yes, he's going around, he's encouraging them, uh, but he's also taking up a collection to go to the saints uh, in Jerusalem as we see uh, highlighted from these other passages. So then finally, Paul takes his leave. So we see he says farewell to the Ephesians. He goes to Macedonia, and with much, uh, and he had gone through the districts and given them much exhortation. And then he also came to Greece. And then there he spent three months when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. And uh, this would be a good time if you have uh, a map in the back of your Bible, right? Uh, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, just to give us some idea of where the Apostle Paul is at this point in time. And thankfully, most of our Bible maps, if you have them, they highlight the third missionary, the, the missionary journeys. But we're looking at the third missionary journey in the back of our Bible. Uh, we see Paul, he begins his third missionary journey in Ephesus. He travels across uh, um, he travels across uh, the continent there into Asia. We see him in Eph- uh, we see him in Ephesus. We follow him north up Ephesus into Smyrna, Pergamum, Troas, and then he hops over into uh, into uh, Acha- into Achaia or into Macedonia, right? And then he eventually goes to Greece. He visits the Corinthians. We have that account in the apostle in uh, the the letters as well. Uh, he gets to Greece. We don't know all the places that he could have gone. Our maps are the best guess. We know for certain that he did go to Corinth, and there it's when he is in it's when he is in Corinth that he hopes to sail back to Syria. So at this point in time, Paul has said, "Okay, it's time to go home. I've done what I need to do. It's time to go." But unfortunately, uh, the Jews had something else in mind for him. Verse 3 says, A plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, so he decided to return through Macedonia. And what's that an opportunity for him to do? To go back to those churches to continue to minister to them as he travels on through. 
and he travels, he uh, continues on through uh, before he eventually makes it to Troas. And that's where we're going to pick up with him next. So, and we see there's, he's num- uh, accompanied by a number of different people representing a number of different places. Uh, some of these men that, Paul is, that are with Paul have been uh, constant traveling companions. Uh, others are perhaps representatives of the regions uh, that Paul had traveled with who are traveling with him to help him uh, deliver that gift to the church. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes to them, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So Paul says, all right, uh, when I come, have some representatives ready, and maybe they might be able to take the gift to Jerusalem, but maybe I'll even travel with them. And perhaps that's where these traveling companions came from, right? And something else we notice in verse 6 Uh, the author begins to use we again. So what this indicates, that Luke likewise has joined up with the Apostle Paul. So he's going on, traveling back. We see him finally uh, travel back to Troas. And that's where the the story picks up again in verse 7. Verse 7 starts this way. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. So Paul is in Troas, and here we get a small picture of what an early Christian church service might have looked like. We don't know if this was the usual thing that they did on Sunday, if this was a special meeting, but it does uh, show us some things that are interesting. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give us a doesn't give us step by step instructions for what a Christian worship service should look like right? It's not a, you know, like, like Ned said this morning, uh, we're thankful we don't have to follow procedure precisely in order to be made right with God. And as far as the church service goes, at least as it's laid out in the New Testament, there really isn't much procedure. Though we do have some examples that we can follow, and this is one of these examples. Uh, we've seen the church gather together before in the book of Acts, uh, and we see them gathering now. This may be, like I said, maybe this is a special service in light of the Apostle Paul's visit. Maybe this is their usual church time and they just have Paul as a special guest speaker. We don't know, but there's a couple things that we do know. One, it was the first day of the week when they met, right? Uh, This was the day of the week that the church gathered together. And what happened on the first day of the week that is so significant? Well, that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Therefore, we see uh, a, a practice that the church picked up of gathering together and worshiping and remembering the Lord Jesus on the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday. So they meet the first day of the week, and there are other things in the New Testament that tell us that this was a a pretty normative thing uh, in writing to the Corinthians and giving them instructions to take up a collection. The Apostle Paul said, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save that he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. Similarly, uh, John, the Apostle, when he is on Patmos, in the book of Revelation, says that I was on the Spirit, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day being Sunday, the first day of the week. 
And we know that this practice continued, well, even to this day. Why do we meet on Sunday? It's not necessarily because there's explicit instructions, but because that is what the church has simply done from its uh, conception. One of the earliest writings uh, called the Didache, written you know, within a hundred years of the apostles, says this, And on the Lord's day, gather yourselves to together and break bread and give thanks. And that brings us to the next thing that they were doing. Uh, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, right? Gathering together to break bread. And in this case, uh, yes, of course, this would have been the Lord's Supper, as we saw earlier on in the book of Acts, but uh, this likely also would have included a shared meal with one another. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see, the pattern that the disciples were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer, right? And this kind of fellowship, gathering together to enjoy a meal and break bread, is the kind of fellowship that was normative in the early church. And this kind of fellowship really is a chance for uh, the church to come together to serve one another, to help build one another up, to encourage one another, Church, of course, includes the reading of the word of God, hearing from what the apostles say, but part of it also should be for us to come together to give one another encouragement, to admonish one another. That's not just my job, that's also your job when we are gathered together, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to build one another up. And we see here that it is at this meeting that the apostle Paul gives a message, and we don't know exactly what was in this message. It, it doesn't say. But what we do know about this message is it was long. This was a long message. So uh, the church probably would have gathered together probably no later than 9 o'clock that evening. That's when everyone would have been off work. That's when everyone would have been able to go home, and that's when they would have come together. And that's something else that's a little interesting, a little bit different. They gathered together and met in the evening as opposed to the morning, and that probably just has to do with their work schedule once everyone's free. Remember, uh, a slave couldn't just say to his master, hey, boss, uh, this morning I can't be there. I've got church. So the slave would have to take the time that he had free already, which probably would have been in the evening, to uh, go to church. So that's when they met. Uh, probably the latest would have been about 9 o'clock. And we see the Apostle Paul, he begins, to, he begins speaking to them because he's leaving the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. So quite a long message stretching hours until midnight. And we'll see later on, it stretches even uh, further than that. And in this, we really do see, I think, part of the selflessness of the Apostle Paul. Now, what do you do the night before you have a really long trip? Well, I usually rest, right? I usually, okay, everything's ready to go. Now, I am just going to relax because I know on this vacation, I'm not going to be able to relax one bit. So I'm going to get my relaxing in now. Uh, that's usually how it goes. What's the Apostle Paul doing? I need to leave the next day. Therefore, I need to take as much time as I can to minister to these saints. I need to take as much time as I can to minister to the people of God. Uh, the Apostle Peter 
writes this in 1 Peter, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And that's really, I think, what the Apostle Paul is is showing us. He is shepherding the flock of God. That's his concern. It's not because he's getting anything out of it uh, or anything like that, but it's because of this great love that he has for the church. And we also see the attentiveness and the desire on the part of the church to hear the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul. Uh, sitting there for hours. Now, here's a question. What is something that you could do tirelessly for hours and hours on end? I'm sure we've all been, have you heard of binge-watching television? I'm sure we've all binge-watched television shows before, haven't we? Now, let's, we're, if you were here with the Apostle Paul speaking, is that something that you would be attentive to? We would say, well, yes, it's the Apostle Paul, of course. Well, just because it's the Apostle Paul, it didn't mean people didn't fall asleep, right? So, uh, and, and that really is, it, it's a challenge to me as well. There, there's an interesting illustration that I found that kind of relates to this. Uh, an illustration given by Spurgeon. He says this, Perhaps you know the legend, or perhaps true history, of the awakening of St. Augustine. And it was actually St. Jerome, not Augustine. But Spurgeon didn't have Logos Bible software to correct him. Anyway, uh, But here's what he says. He dreamed that he died, and he went to the gates of heaven. And the keeper of the gate said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am a Christian. But the attendant at the gate said, No, you are not a Christian. You are a Ciceronian. For your thoughts and studies were most of all directed to the works of Cicero and the classics, and you neglected the teaching of Jesus. We judge men here by that which most engrossed their thoughts. And you are not judged to be a Christian, but a Ciceronian. Now there's a challenge. Thank God, uh, by the grace of God, I'm judged by what Christ has done. But also we need to consider what the Lord Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we see where the treasure is for these people. And it's a challenge for me. Where is my treasure? What am I spending my time doing? It's not to say that every single Sunday we show up at 9 o'clock and we break Monday morning at 6 o'clock. That's not what I'm saying. But it should say something about what, what is my attitude like when I come to church? Am I just waiting for the clock to hit the right time so I can get out of here? Or am I here to hear the word of God, to be encouraged by the word of God, to seek to apply that to my life? That's the attitude that we should have. So uh, we continue reading and we see that uh, this was quite an exciting worship service. And for more reason than one, not only did they have a guest speaker, but uh, something quite interesting happened in the middle of it. So here we have this young boy, Eutychus, and I don't want to put too much blame on the poor guy. Remember, this probably would have been the end of a long day at work. They're in the upper room, third story, and Luke sets the scene for us. Now there were many lamps in the upper room, and they were gathered together. And a young man named Eutychus was sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. So hey, 
Long day work. Here I am in this upper room, hot Mediterranean weather, got the lamps, and here's this guy, Paul, and he's got some good things to say, but, you know, the hours are ticking by, Paul keeps talking, and we continue reading, and it says, and as Paul kept on talking, and that's how I've read it, he sunk into that deep sleep. And then, uh, you ever have, when you're sleeping, you ever have that dream where you're falling and you kind of jolt awake? <laughs> well, this guy had that feeling, but he did not. <laughs> when he jolted, uh, well, he, he landed on the ground and uh, he wasn't awake anymore after that. Uh, let's just say that. So this young man falls from the third floor and was picked up dead. So really kind of a tragic thing. Uh, you know, the last thing I would want is someone in, someone in here to die as I'm preaching. Yeah, that'd really put a damper on the, on the message, wouldn't it? Um, but we see what Paul does. Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Now there's a, there's a story very similar. There's actually two stories that happen that are very similar to this. Two prophets who did something very similar to this. Does anyone know who those two prophets were? Both, both of them start with an E. Elijah and Elisha. Yeah, it's easy. You know, those two names, since they flow so easily together, once you know one, you know the other. But uh, something very similar happened to them. And here we have the Apostle Paul going down, show, exercising his authority as an apostle, and this man receives, this young man receives new life. Verse 11, And when he had gone back up, and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and left. And then they took away the boy alive and were not a little comforted. So uh, the service continues. And man, I wonder if at that point in time, as Paul was preaching, if he wasn't trying to come up with some kind of illustration uh, to talk about the new life that we have in Christ. Well, what an illustration would that be? This young man falling to his death, but now receiving life from God. Really a picture of the new life that we receive from the Lord Jesus through faith in him. Uh, man, there's a, there's a killer illustration. He probably used that illustration in every sermon he preached from then on out, right? Uh, this young man dies, and then God in his power restored him to life. We too, dead in our trespasses and sins, brought to new life by what Christ has done. So uh, just to finish up, verse 13, we continue on. But we were going ahead by ship, setting sail for Assos, so this would be Luke and the rest of his traveling companions, uh, intending from there to take Paul on board, for, he had, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend, uh, spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul and his party traveling around. And we see Paul has an urgency now. He wants to get to Jerusalem. 
And there's a time limit. He wants to get there by Pentecost for one reason or another. So he does not take the time to go into Asia. Uh, and we find him now uh, here uh, in this uh, city, this city of Miletus. And that's where we'll pick up with him last time, uh, next time. But this doesn't mean that Paul, the concern that he showed the churches in his traveling through, it doesn't mean that he doesn't also have that concern for the church of Ephesus. And that's where we're going to pick up next time, where the Apostle Paul, he sends for the elders of Ephesus, and he gives what we could call his departing address uh, as he uh, then departs to go to Jerusalem. So some, some concluding thoughts. There's a couple words that kept coming up here that I think are important. Uh, exhorted, encouraged, comforted. That seems, those words seem to encompass Paul's ministry during this time as he is going back from church to church, giving encouragement, giving exhortation, comforting those who are there. Uh, the, pe- the people uh, in Troas certainly comforted greatly, not only by the new life that this boy had received, but also from the ministry of the Apostle Paul there. We also see Paul's, uh, we see Paul's great concern when it comes to encouraging the saints. And perhaps this urgency comes from Paul not knowing what was going to happen when he reached Jerusalem. As we will le- read uh, later on in this chapter, Paul does not know what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Paul, you know, we, we can read it now and we can, we can have perfect hindsight, but Paul in that day, he didn't know what happened, what could happen. Uh, he could very easily be martyred when he went there. So this may have been his last opportunity to impart a word of encouragement to his brothers and sisters before they're left on their own. So he's going back, making sure the churches are equipped, making sure they're ready to stand up to whatever challenges will come and face them. And we also see that Paul, in his ministry, uh, that great love that he shows, uh, that great selflessness, the tireless work that he puts in on behalf of the saints. And it brings to mind what Jesus said of how the world, when the world looks upon us, how they will know we belong to him. And Jesus says, the world will know that you belong to me by your love for one another. And love in the scriptures is not just a nice, warm feeling I have in my heart. Yes, that certainly, uh, that certainly is part of it. But love is my action. Love is seen in action. Love is seen in my ministry to you and your ministry to me, my encouragement to you, your encouragement to me, challenging one another, encouraging one another, building one another up. And we see the great love that the Lord Jesus has as the Apostle Paul, his representative, goes around to his churches, encouraging them, building them up. And it's a love that, just as the Apostle Paul says, uh, emulate me as I emulate Christ, we too should try to emulate that love in the areas that God has placed us, in the church that God has placed us. Well, that is all that we have time for this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have together, this great example of love in the Apostle Paul, and not just in the Apostle Paul, but the love of the churches your churches, these people throughout Macedonia and Greece, uh, though long dead, people that you have called to yourself, people that you have all had a purpose for, people who were part in building up the body. Lord, help us to recognize that 
though we're separated by time and distance, we really are no different from these people in Macedonia, in Greece. We too have been called by your grace and we too have been given this great example of love. Help us to love one another. Help us to minister to one another in our actions, in our words, uh, in our thoughts. Lord, be with us. Help us, us uh, help us with this as we strive to do this this week. Let the world look upon us and know that we have been with Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.